0: immigration system has a lot of serious problems. While immigration was a constant focus during the Trump administration and the rhetoric particularly toxic during those four years, many of the problems predate that administration, and for the most part, they still exist today. We wanted to learn about these problems, what they are, and most importantly, how can the country start to address them? So we caught up with Sarah Paletti. She is a practice professor of law and director of the Transnational National Legal Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School. So first, to just kind of set the table, as it stands right now, what is the state of the U.S. immigration system?
1: I would say the state of the U.S. immigration system is currently very much what it was when the Biden administration took office. Unfortunately, um, we have seen very little move to restore a humanitarian approach to our treatment of asylum seekers and other people arriving at the southern border. We've seen a perpetuation of the use of what are called Title 42 expulsions, which are sort of using a provision of the law that allows for determination that there's a public health reason to expel people from the border despite statements from public health officials uh, and public health experts that it's unnecessary. We have seen a continuation of and resumption of, after a brief suspension of, a resumption of the Remain in Mexico program. We are continuing to see detention across the country, and while some detention centers have closed, new detention centers are opening. And so with that, we see ongoing family separation, not quite at the same degree and in the dramatic level that we saw under the Trump administration, but anytime you detain somebody, that person has family members and that's resulting in family separation. It restricts access to legal services and the ability to actually pursue any claims for relief. We've seen very little movement, despite what's going on in Congress now and and debates going on in Congress now about an expanded program for legalization. We have huge backlogs in the immigration courts. We have huge backlogs in the asylum office. We have huge backlogs throughout uh, the immigration system for people who are waiting in line. Um, For those who have a line to get into, um, they are still waiting uh, an extraordinarily long time in those lines. That's where we are.
0: The, previous, the Trump administration did not mince words when it came to their immigration policy. They worked hard to prevent as many people as they could from, from coming in. Uh, prior to the Trump administration, was our immigration system in a... Was it still messy and problematic And the four years of... Donald Trump's presidency accelerated and enhanced that? Because it seems to me as a layman who isn't exceptionally smart on these matters, that this is something people have been complaining about and been trying to fix for almost as long as I've been alive.
1: That's absolutely right. Um, And I think a really important thing to point out. Right. And what was different under Trump was that we saw explicit use of race and xenophobia in the language used to justify the actions and a cruelty in the rhetoric and a cruelty in the execution of the policies that went beyond what we had seen and a seemingly weekly barrage of executive memos and presidential proclamations aimed at making the system harder, Ruler, right? Uh, for for those involved in it, and right, starting with the Muslim ban, but but it went beyond that. But family detention was sort of accelerated under the Obama administration in 2014 when we saw what the, the Obama administration viewed was uh, a rise in arriving families and children at the southern border. Um, And I think they saw family detention as a form of deterrence. Um, It didn't work, but that really laid the groundwork for what later became the really horrific images of family separation that we saw under the Trump administration. Um, But even before that, right, we had the 1996 legislation. So in 1996, under the Clinton administration, it was the Gingrich Congress, right? But the but the Clinton administration, the passage by Congress of two bills that really radically changed the the landscape for immigration enforcement. And that was EDPA, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, and IRA IRA, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. Uh, And those two pieces of legislation combined created expanded bases for interior enforcement And so through that, we saw a dramatic expansion of crimes that could be considered for deeming somebody to be removable. So a a legal permanent resident with two or more misdemeanors is suddenly somebody who, no matter how long they've been in this country, no matter their ties to the country, no matter U.S. citizens children or, or all the accolades that they have in their favor, are subject to removal and with that mandatory detention. And when I say two or more crimes, you know, two or more misdemeanors, that the term in the immigration law is aggravated felony. But when you look to the specifics of the law, a repeat offender as a turnstile jumper in the subway uh, is somebody who is going to fall into uh into that minor drug offenses, marijuana possession offenses is going to put somebody into that category. And then the right with With the the mandatory detention, we really saw a dramatic rise in the private prison industry in the detention of immigrants. And so now we have a real profit motive and a very powerful lobby um, at play in the expansion of detention uh, and the overall criminalization of immigration. Before that, in 1993, uh, in terms of our asylum system, after the initial attempted bombing of the World Trade Center, um, when two individuals drove a truck into the garage with bombs into the World Trade Center, there was a move to restrict uh, access to the asylum system. And so we have a one-year filing deadline for people applying. You have to apply for asylum within one year of arriving in the United States which creates real barriers for people who arrive with sig- having experienced significant trauma, few ties to the community access to legal services, knowledge of the system, um, who are excluded from a very fundamental protection that is afforded under international law and our obligations under international uh, the International Refugee Convention. And then we decided that we wouldn't allow individuals seeking asylum to apply for work authorization until they had waited 180 days. So they finally file for asylum and they're stuck here without the ability to work lawfully and sort of forcing them into an illegal economy um, because they have to support themselves and their families. the situation of backlogs was bad. It had gotten better. And with the increased enforcement efforts and the removal of uh, things like sort of the ability of immigration judges to grant administrative closure or to terminate cases where there are other avenues of relief outside of outside of the immigration court has resulted in a backlog that is is uh at least unprecedented in my days as practice. And so in Philadelphia, we're seeing court schedule cases out two years from now. In the asylum office, they flipped the order of processing cases. So individuals who filed for asylum in 2017, 2016 are still waiting for an interview.
0: And that's one of the, one of the things is you'll hear a lot of people make arguments. I'm not against immigration. I just think people should come to this country lawfully and legally. But it's kind of like, what are the next 10 words to that sentence? Because chances are, if you're leaving one country to come to another, yes, there are circumstances where you're, you know, you're in a place where you have a job potential and you can afford to wait. And whenever it comes, it comes. A lot of these places you're dealing with drug cartels, or you're dealing with civil war, or things that we can't get our heads around, uh, if, you know, in this country, because it, it's just words on a newspaper or, or something like that. Uh, one of the big problems is the, the legal and quote, unquote, correct ways are so backlogged, it, it almost makes it irrelevant, no?
1: Right, I think that's right. I mean, I think the first thing, so there are a couple of things that you can highlight. One is, Few people leave their country if they don't have to, right? Few people are going to get up and leave their home, their family, their community, their language, their culture. Yes, this is a great country, but it's, it, it's not their, it, it wasn't their home to start off with. And few people leave their home unless they really feel like they have no other choice to provide for themselves and their families. And the problem is, is that the asylum system itself is a very narrowly defined system of relief. And so it's only available to individuals who can prove that they have a well-founded fear of persecution on account of one of five protected grounds. So they have to prove not only that they face persecution, but that that persecution is because of their race, religion, membership in a particular social group, nationality. So it's it's a narrow category of individuals, and it doesn't necessarily encompass folks who are fleeing humanitarian crises and humanitarian disasters in a country that is ripe with political instability, infrastructure challenges and all the rest. And so I think that's where you have a a large number of individuals for whom there is no line to get into. There was a lot of talk under the Trump administration about chain migration and family members, but the reality is family-based immigration is limited to children, spouses, and parents of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents and siblings. But that line is very long, and all of those are subject to countries, uh, sorry, to quotas and and country-specific quotas um, and numerical quotas. So that those lines even if you can get into that line, those are the lines that are very
0: long. How would we start to make things better? Uh, Just in the first 12 minutes of our conversation here, there is not one big thing. It would appear that if we did X, it might not fix it, but we'd be in a better place overall. So give me a few things that, you know, we, we should focus on that if we could start to get these things right it would make it a little easier there'd still be protections in place but we'd be in a better place
1: so i think the first thing and something you know that we have we started to see although the the rhetoric did not match the action is a change in the rhetoric and so I think if we can at least start by talking about immigrants or individuals seeking to come to this country or live in this country who are not necess- who are not native born um, or who do not look like us or who do not speak the English language fluently, if we start talking about them as people <laughs> and recognize the humanity of all people, if we can just shift that rhetoric a little bit, that in and of itself, I think is the first step, right? And when Senator Menendez introduced the legislation at the start of the, at the start of 2021, I think all of us who work in the immigration space and the, within the advocacy arena were really excited just by a a very small but critical change in the immigration laws, which was to change the statute to refer to non-citizens as non-citizens instead of aliens, which to those of us who practice, right, recognize the ways in which talking about criminal aliens allows for a totally different conversation than talking about an individual who fled to the United States from whatever country they fled to the United States from. And so it is really rethinking how we want to talk about immigration and think about immigration and moving away from a system of criminalization of immigration to one of reception and recognizing the sort of foundational role that immigrants play in this country, the critical role they move they play in moving this country forward, the value they have to add, again, as people, not necessarily as labor commodities. Um, so I think that's is a is this, that's a very sort of philosophical <laughs> response. Um, in terms of sort of policies and practices, I, I, we can break it down to a couple of different areas. I think the first is what are we doing in the context of humanitarian forms of relief? Um, and so how are we treating people arriving at the border who are seeking protection and security? Um, and at the administrative level, the administration can decide to end Title 42 expulsions and can end the Remain in Mexico program and allow people to come into the United States and apply for asylum, right, go through the process. Then the question is, can we provide universal access to legal services? It often astounds colleagues of mine who are criminal defense attorneys or other attorneys or other people um, who aren't even attorneys, when I tell them that I have a client who has been in detention for almost four years in immigrant detention, but it is a county jail for crimes for which the criminal justice system sentenced him to an aggregate of six months and a year of probation. And fighting to get him out is is an insurmountable, a seemingly a seemingly insurmountable hurdle that I haven't given up yet. But um, but he doesn't have a right to an attorney. He's getting one, but he doesn't have a right to an attorney. He has a right to be represented by counsel, but not free of charge. And where there is a deprivation of liberty, at least in our criminal justice system, we allow for representation, uh, legal representation, free of charge for those who can't afford it. Uh, And so I think providing uh, universal representation allows for a better understanding of a very complex legal system and facilitates the work of the judges and the asylum officers in doing their job in assessing what the claims are. So I think those are, in terms of kind of humanitarian forms of relief, it is how do we look at these systems and make sure that we are providing access to the system we have the process also from the 1996 legislation of expedited removal. Um, so people are given a very preliminary cursory screening at the border. And then if they don't pass that preliminary screening, they get a, one round of review by an immigration judge, and then they're subject to immediate expulsion or deportation. If they pass that, they're subject to detention. They can get out on parole And again, so how can we get move away from the system of detention, allow people to live with family members? They live with family members, they're more likely to be near urban areas, more likely to be accessible to legal representation. Um, So that's one thing. The immigration courts um, need to come out under the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice. So right now, the immigration courts that are adjudicating these cases fall under the authority of the attorney general, who falls under the authority of the president. So there isn't real meaningful independence and autonomy in the adjudication of immigration cases. Um, In terms of the the backlogs, we need to reassess what the quotas are and the numerical limits we have. Um, In the UNT visa system, which are visas for victims of particularly serious crimes who cooperate with law enforcement, or victims of um, severe forms of trafficking who cooperate with law enforcement. They're eligible to receive visas that then allow them a pathway towards citizenship. Those are capped. And so there's a huge backlog in those systems, up to four years for the processing of a U visa. There's no rational basis behind those caps. Um, and so we really need to think about what are the caps. We need to think about. What is the rationale behind the caps in our refugee resettlement program? And that was something that was, was highly debated and eviscerated by the Trump administration and is slowly being brought back online by the Biden administration. Um, but if you look at the overall numbers relative to the population in this country, they pale in comparison. And so where do these numbers come from? <laughs> Why do they exist? We need to remove profit motives from the system of immigration enforcement. Um, And so as Obama did in sort of his final days of his administration and as, as President Biden announced when he came into office, removing the private prison corporation from the criminal justice system, but it is still very alive and well in the immigration enforcement system.
0: When it comes to fixes, and you mentioned so many different avenues, is it a mix of a Congress, a legislative fix? Are these things, and I think you pointed out, a lot, a lot of them seem to be the executive that through executive order or stuff could be overturned or or implemented, but does it need to be legislative so that it isn't every four years, every eight years, we're doing this back and forth where, you know, we change back and forth. Should we focus, if you want to try to do this right, on the legislative track? Yes.
1: I think we are, we are honestly tweaking at the margins when we deal with it from the administrative, from the executive branch. And yes, those tweaks at the margins can have significant impact on the lives of, of families and on communities across the country. But ultimately, yes, much of this, the reason why the executive branch has been acting is because Congress has failed. Um, and Congress has been failing since You know, 2003, we almost had comprehensive immigration reform. 2008, we had a bipartisan proposal for comprehensive immigration reform. We had a bipartisan proposal and bipartisan support for the DREAM Act, which was the precursor to DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, right? So um, it is when Congress has failed to act that the executive branch has stepped in. Many of these provisions that we're seeing executed at the border and the detention of immigrants, that is in the legislation, right? There is a there is a legislative basis for some of what is being done um, in terms of sort of the crueler and harsher policies. And then the question is, what is the discretion that the executive branch has in executing those laws? And so the debate around prosecutorial discretion, which is very foundational to any system of enforcement um, is the decision, what gets enforced and what doesn't, how, does, how do we enforce this? How do we prioritize, make it priorities among our enforcement efforts? That rests with the executive, but who even gets brought into that system in the first place is part of the legislation. And so I, I think who gets in, who gets through, a lot of that is grounded in the legislation. And so I think, particularly looking at the 1996 legislation, looking at issues of some of the numerical caps, those aren't all administrative executive branch decisions. Some of those are congressional as
0: well. We have seen immigration the last few years be used in election cycles as a, a something to gin up the base specifically on the Republican side. Isn't this something, and we always should have been looking at this, but this needs to be something that's looked at outside of the political because we are an older country. If you just want to look at it purely from a statistical, and you mentioned all the the humanity and, and what people from other countries bring in terms of culture and all that. But if you just want to look purely at the numbers and purely statistical, older country, people having fewer kids, guess what, folks? that catches up to you as a country eventually and you know how you 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 complement that and stay at the levels where everything works like you kind of want it to work is with immigration how much of a disservice are we doing to ourselves in the big picture by treating immigration this way
1: a huge disservice a huge disservice i think we have allowed ourselves to hyper politicize immigration. It it has always been a political issue. I mean, I I will say it is it has never not been political, but it has never been so political. And I think, you know, part of it is we are in a hyper politicized environment. The notion of a bipartisan proposal with some of the more conservative members of the Senate, honestly, in 2008, coming forward and putting their names as sponsors of the, of the proposed legislation, that was a heavily negotiated piece of legislation with lots of compromises made on both sides, but a recognition of, again, as you pointed out, sort of what was good for this country. What was good for this country while also staying true to what we espouse as our values. Um, and so I think that we need to find our way back to that. I think you're absolutely right. The country is getting older. Um, the social security, you know, social security system is is entirely dependent upon income from new immigrants and undocumented immigrants. Um, and we need to recognize that and the value that immigrants bring, both in terms of sheer numbers and filling the workforce, um, in terms of tax base, in terms of contributions to the community. I mean, if we look at the DACA debate in and of itself, a huge number of DACA recipients are first line responders in the medical community, responding to the COVID crisis. Right? They are essential workers, um, and they are essential members of the community. And and as you pointed out, right. The numbers bear out that we need immigration for this country to flourish.
0: All that being said, what is your confidence level that we will see serious people addressing this seriously within the next five, 10 years?
1: I confess I have always been the resident skeptic on comprehensive immigration reform because it is such a tangled web. Um, and it implicates so many aspects of, of life, um, and of law. Right. Um, but hopefully we will come to the point where we realize we, one, we don't really have a choice. We've got to figure this out, that the system that we currently have is not sustainable. It is inhumane and, and If we want to espouse family values, then we need to look at what's happening to families in the context of immigration enforcement or denial of entry of people um, based on immigration status. And so we do need to look at this seriously. We need to come together and figure out how to move forward and get past the fear. I think among the Democrats, there is a fear of being labeled pro-immigrant and the voices, on the anti-immigrant side, are very loud and very organized, uh, and we need to find our way past that noise.
0: That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.